If you would, open your Bibles and join me in John chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. If you would like to keep it or borrow it, raise your hand and we'll get one to you uh, very soon. But we are in John chapter 12. Before I read our text to begin the message this morning, we are in the 35th sermon of walking through the Gospel of John together. And by way of reminder, as I prepare to read our passage for today, there's a big transition taking place in the Gospel of John in the life and ministry of Jesus. So, uh, the end of chapter 11 and all of chapter 12, where we find ourselves this morning, is the closing of Jesus' public ministry and the beginning of his private ministry, so to speak, where he's about to go to the Last Supper and for the next five or so chapters is going to be teaching his disciples. So we're at these, this transition point. And so a lot of significant things are taking place. Last time together, it was the triumphal entry. Jesus had uh, got for him that colt. He was on that donkey as the afflicted king riding into Jerusalem. So with that said, and without much more, let's look at verse 19. Verses 19 to 36, let's set God's word before us, and then I'll pray. John 12. So, the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the, the whole world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, said that it, was, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now was the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered Jesus, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, that's what we, we need, it's what we want, to be sons and daughters of the light. 
to walk after Jesus, to be his servant, to be honored by you. But Lord, unless you move in our hearts by your spirit, unless you open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word and to obey it and feast on it, unless you do those things, we won't like you, we won't like your word, and we won't follow Jesus. So Lord, would you, by your grace, let us together treasure Christ through his word and that we would walk in the light as Jesus is the light. If there's any here, Lord, who don't yet know you, who are still walking in darkness, may you dawn on them. If there's any who are walking in death, would you give them life and faith in Jesus Christ? So Lord, open us to you. Let us think your thoughts after you. Let us believe your truth with all that we are. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's people said, amen. In our passage this morning, there is a question that hangs over both Jesus and, by extension, you and me. And the question that is subtly hanging over and undergirding the text is this. What are you willing to die for? I don't know how often you maybe truly think and feel that question, what are you willing to die for? There's another question, the opposite is, what are you willing to live for? And you can take an audit of your calendar and your bank account to see how you use your time and your money to see what you really live for and why you live for it. But are you willing to die for anything? And if so, what? And, and why? In this text this morning, Jesus is going to speak of his death in some of the clearest terms that he has done so far in the gospel. But there's also a response demanded of us, specifically demanded of you. And so we will hear what Jesus has to say. And so as we're looking at what he says, these questions are hanging over our heads, both of Jesus, because Jesus is willing to die for something, because he's willing to live for something. The question is, are you? And if you are, are they the right things? So to look at those, our outline this morning, if you're taking notes, comes in three parts. Here it is, number one. We're going to see in verses 19 to 26, Jesus' life-giving death. And from there, we'll move into verses 27 to 33, and we'll look at Jesus' troubled soul. And then our time will close in verses 34 to 36 with an admonition to you and me, believe in the light while you have the light. Well, without further ado, let's jump back at verse 19 here in John 12. I want you to notice the context of how the Pharisees what they say and how they respond to Jesus on the cult going into Jerusalem and people taking off palm branches, waving them in the air and putting them on the ground. Listen to how the Pharisees respond and then look what happens next in terms of who shows up. So see if you can make these connections. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now look at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. That's the world. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, 
we wish to see Jesus. Philip told Andrew. Andrew and Philip told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. In classic Jesus style, he appears to not address the Greeks at all, but uses their arrival and request to see Jesus as an opportunity to teach more truths about him. So let's look at what Jesus says in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. All the way that we have been following Jesus together in the Gospel of John, there has been a refrain. Almost every chapter that we've heard, either from Jesus himself or when John the narrator slips in and says something, it's, it's this refrain. His hour was not yet. Or Jesus saying all the time, my hour is not yet. And now, in this um, cataclysmic moment of transition, of change, Jesus now utters the words that have been um, expected with a pregnant-like expectancy since the fall. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what is astonishing, as I pointed out to you already, is that Jesus says this in response to two Greeks, that is two non-Jews, non-ethnic Israelites, have come to request to speak with Jesus, and Jesus doesn't even appear to acknowledge them. However, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, their request to speak with Jesus prompts Jesus to make this statement. What's going on here? The rumor of the gospel of the kingdom of God is now beginning to bear fruit even among Gentiles. So it's not just this, this, um, this fruit-bearing moment among the, the, the Jews or, or even when Jesus crossed over into Samaria, the half-Jews. Now the gospel has gone out virally into the boundaries beyond Israel itself and now Greeks or Gentiles are coming to, G- to see Jesus. And so now that prompts Jesus to say, the hour has come. The hour to be glorified is here. And look at the imagery that Jesus uses to explain his hour. It's not entirely what we would expect. The crowd hears what Jesus says and they don't get it. But, but look at what his hour is. Verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This, of course, is a a paradox. And Jesus speaks many paradoxes in this passage, which we'll look at. But the paradox, of course, here is Jesus speaking of himself, is that paradox of all paradoxes, his death is going to give life. And that's impossible with man, but it's not impossible with the God-man. 
And so this paradox, you know a paradox, it's, a, it's an absurd statement. It's, it appears self-contradictory. It appears impossible, but it's absolutely true. It's utterly true in reality as it really is. And so the paradox is that death will give life. Someone else's death will give you life. And the paradox is not just one for one, that the one death of Jesus, the one man, will give one life to someone else. No, somehow Jesus is claiming, like the seed, like the wheat, that when he goes into the ground, that his death will give abundant and overflowing life to many. So the imagery he uses is the seed. You, you hold a seed in your hand, and, and a seed will stay a seed and continue to be a seed until it is buried. And only after it's buried, and once it's buried, and only after it's buried, then does that seed come to life. And so Jesus' analogy, his metaphor, is that the seed is going to be him, that as a seed is sown, the one grain of wheat produces a crop, Jesus will be sown into the ground, and he will have a fruitful harvest. Plainly, Jesus is teaching that his death is required to give you life. All of us are shopping for life in one way or another. Not just eternal life, but quality of life. It's your relationships. It is your academic pursuits. It's your vocational pursuits. It's, it's the children you have, the children you don't have. It's, it's what you do with your recreation and your time. We are all pursuing life. We want life to feel a certain way. We want to give it. We want life to give us things. And, and then we also think that we can do things to live forever. But here we discover that there is a type of life, quality of life, and duration of life that Jesus' death and his death alone is required to give you true life. But so powerful is Jesus' death, so powerful is his resurrection from the grave, that the death and burial of, of Jesus for our sins and his resurrection is nothing less than unending life for countless multitudes of people to world without end. So it's not one for one, one death for one life. No, Jesus is the one grain, the one seed that goes in. And when Jesus goes into the grave, what will come is millions and billions of people devoted to Jesus Christ. Here's what that means. If you want life, you must look to Jesus' death. There is no life apart from the cross of Christ and his atonement for our sins and in our place. So, so Jesus is teaching his death is required to give you life. So if you want life, you must look to Jesus' death and keep looking at his death. In fact, sit at the cross and stare at his empty tomb for eternal life. But here, friends, is where Jesus turns this cosmic truth, this glorious gift and gracious reality to offer life, he turns it back on us. And it happens in verse 25. Look at what Jesus says. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's as if in this very moment, all the world strips away, 
All the other people strip away, and it's Jesus is looking piercingly right into your eyes, and he is calling to each one and every one of us and every one of you, and he is saying, whoever loves his life, he is warning you, he's challenging you, he's admonishing you, whoever loves his life loses it, whatever that means, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, whatever that means. Jesus is grabbing you by the collar. He's holding you by the face. He's looking into your eyes and he is challenging you with regard to your attitude and your relationship with your life in this age, in this world. The gospel of John is clear. The world lives in darkness and likes it. The world does not come to the light. And so the, what he's getting at is that if your affections are for the things and ways of this world more than the next world, more than following Jesus in this world, then you may not have or don't have here, you lose your life eternally. So for example, John who's writing this, recording what Jesus says, will later tell us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, listen to this description of helping understand what the Christian's relationship is to the world. So we keep, keep working with this. Verse 15 of 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, John continues, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So whatever John means by the world, he's speaking into our hearts about our attitude and relationship with all the things that the world has to offer. And the end of 1 John 2.17 indicates that the world is passing away. It's temporal along with its desires. And a new world is coming, the eternal one. And whoever does the will of God will abide forever on the new heavens and new earth. So this is another paradox. The paradox of John 12 is that if you love your life, then you need to hate your life in this world. But if you love your life in this world, you actually hate your life because eternal life is at stake. Clear? Still not clear. It's this paradox. To love this world will to lose the next eternally. To hate your life in this world, you will gain it eternally in the next. So what does he mean? You see, to hate this world is to reject all that this world, in all of its rebellion to, to Jesus, it's to reject all of it so that you can gain eternal life. Okay, so, so James has something to say about this. James 4.4, 4, he also bears witness to what John and 1 John and now James 4.4, 4, James tells us, he chimes in and he says, do you not know that friendship with the world, listen to this word, is enmity with God? 
That word enmity, we don't use it very often, but enmity is one of the strongest words in the English language to describe hostility and warfare between two parties. James says, don't you know, meaning that you should know, that to be a friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, James continues, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, so, so, so what's going on? In all of these cases, whether it's the Gospel of John or 1 John or James or other passages we can marshal, to say you hate the world does not mean that you're supposed to hate the physicality of the world. You're not supposed to hate rocks and rainbows and waterfalls and flowers and beaches and waves and more. It's not what he is saying. You're not to hate creation. God made creation very good. It has fallen to be sure. A new creation is coming. But there's an idea that has slipped into Christianity that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. That's not correct. That's false. The creation is very good, but fallen. It will be redeemed. What's going on here is talking about the patterns, the ideologies, the philosophies, the cultures, the lifestyles, the choices, the hobbies, everything in this world that is the fruit of human hearts living in rebellion to God. So world is metaphorical of cultures, political systems, ideologies, and philosophies. It's everything that is in rejection to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me put this differently. To love your life in this world means that you are more at home in this world than the hope of the next. And the things that this world has to offer, you find more satisfying than the hope of the next. To love your life in this world means that you're more satisfied, more alert, more devoted to the things not of Jesus and his life that he wants us to live in this world. That's to love your life in this world. It is to be more at home with those things that happily led to the crucifixion of Jesus. It is having desires that are more Jesus-less than full of Jesus. So then to hate this world, Jesus means, is to renounce the ways of this world in rebellion to Christ. It's to renounce thinking that is indifferent of Jesus. It is, it is feelings that are in rebellion to Christ. It's the attitudes that reject Jesus. It's the thinking, it's the feeling, it's the attitude, it's the life patterns. To hate this world is to recognize the world as it is, bondage and death. You see, to love your life in the world is to disregard Jesus, King Jesus, and the way that he wants you to live in the world, how he wants you to organize your life in the world. It's to, it's to, it's to think that Jesus is maybe a supplemental add-on that you can kind of sort of have him as a, an, an appendage to your life, that maybe you, you, you speak to him when life is hard or you don't have anything better to do. No, to hate this world means that you're going to adopt the way that Jesus thinks about things, the way that Jesus designed personhood and gender. 
the way that Jesus designed marriage and sexuality and parenting. Jesus' centrality of the local church and the life of a Christian and their personal discipleship and more. How we use our words, how we use our time, how we live following him. To hate the world is to be willing to be hated by the world because the world hates Christ. Again, to hate the world is to be willing to be hated by the world because the world hates Christ. Parallel text to John 12 is Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 24 to 27, similar conversation. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, now listen to this. Just pause there for a second. I know some of you know this. But what do you expect Jesus to say? He, Jesus is, a, is about to speak to you and say, oh, you're a follower of Christ, are you? Here is my demand upon your life, says Jesus. If anyone would come after me, let him follow me as he feels like it. No, it doesn't. Does your Bible say that? No, it doesn't say that. Sorry. If anyone would come after me, let him do what is right in his own eyes. No, it doesn't say that. Hmm. What does he say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. That's the denying yourself. And whoever loses his life for my sake, taking up your cross, will find it. Life is found and cross-bearing followership of Jesus. Not what's doing what we feel like or what's convenient, but it's taking up both the cross and Jesus' yoke and following him. There's a cost here. It's still, I'm still in Matthew 16, verse 26. Jesus continues, For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going, to, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay each person according to what he has done. So listen. All of this talk about hating the world and John and 1 John and James and Matthew, here's how you should not misunderstand this. Hating the world does not contradict it at all the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Hating the world does not give you permission to not be a good Samaritan and go to the most unlikely person who is the opposite of you and show them the love of Christ. That's not what hating the world is. Hating the world does not cancel out the command to go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus. Hating the world doesn't mean we go hide in our homes and just wait for Jesus to come back. That's not what he's talking about. We're talking about allegiance. Does your calendar, does your wallet, does your heart affections reveal that your ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus or someone or something else? A wife, a husband, a kid's job or more. Listen, there are many good things, many good things that that there's a danger that we have. Uh, our relationship, school, work, whatever it is, hobby, we can worship something or we can worship with something. 
All of life is meant to be a vehicle of worship, but we can turn good things into ultimate things and begin to make that object deified, and we begin to live for it rather than for Christ. So to hate the world means that our devotion is ultimately to King Jesus and what King Jesus says. It's rejecting the attitudes and beliefs of the world under the sway of Satan. It's when the world tells a wife, you should not submit to your husband as to the Lord. Or when the world says, children, you should not obey your parents as in the Lord. Or when the world encourages guys uh, not to love their wives as Christ loved the church. We reject all of those things because the world is against all of those things. We reject theirs, what they teach, and we put on the way of Christ because only the way of Christ leads to human flourishing and more. So hating the world does not mean that you should not befriend your neighbors and love them and invite them into your home and extend hospitality to them. You should do that. That's the love of Christ for them. But hating the world is these guardrails. It's a line in the sand that Jesus puts that he tells to us, his people, that our allegiance and knowledge is based, our allegiance is to him and our knowledge is, is based on the word of God, the true story of the world. For whatever degree of philosophy or a political system or a perspective, anything that we have that even sounds like it accords with Scripture a little bit is just simply smuggling in biblical truth. And so it's, it's Christ, and it's Christ alone and his word to us that he speaks the truth. And when we go to him in his word together to understand what he says and what it means to, sh to have allegiance to him. And so Jesus continues in verse 26 of John 12. Listen to what he says. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Service and followership, they're the same. And I remind you that it was a few verses before that we saw Mary bowing down at Christ's feet as a servant, anointing his feet, anointing him for burial. And it's in the next chapter that we're going to see Jesus put the towel around his waist and bow down, as it were, not in worship, but to get on his knees and wash, to humble himself and wash his disciples' feet. So Jesus says, to serve him is to follow him, is to obey him. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So we put on the ways of Jesus. We put on the beliefs of Jesus. We follow Jesus on Jesus' terms. We live our lives on Jesus' terms. We put on the character of Christ, and it's to know and follow him. And he tells us in the book. He tells us in the book. And there's another paradox here that we're going to return to at the end. But the paradox is the last words of Jesus in verse 26. If anyone serves me, humble servitude, the Father will honor exaltation. We'll come back to that at the end. But now let's move into the second point. Jesus' troubled soul, verse 27. Jesus continues, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this very purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it and said that it had thundered. 
Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this, verse 33, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, we must not forget that Jesus, you see, there's, there's words of hope here. We must not forget that Jesus is as much man as he is God. He is not God with a human shell. He is truly God and truly man. Jesus was not a man who was a stoic and dispassionate and felt nothing. Jesus, as the perfect man, experienced emotion perfectly, and he was without sin. And these words, look at what he says, Now is my soul troubled. The word troubled is like the the shaking and shimmering of a leaf in the wind. There's a quivering to Christ where he is, his soul is troubled. He, he, the hour has come. Jesus knows the excruciating pain he would receive for hours on end. He, he knows the lies and the insults and the mockery that would be spit at him. He knows the betrayal and abandonment of his closest friends. It was at the doorstep of his soul, and so he was disturbed and troubled. There's good news here, because in this previous part where he says to hate your life in the world and to take up your cross and to follow him, there is a cost to that. We are weak. We're in the process of sanctification. We are allured by false truths. In other words, they're not true. We, we spend our time doom scrolling on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and, and we're looking at the ways of the world and we spend hundreds of, dozens of hours every week looking at screens that are indoctrinating us, discipling us into the ways of the world, passively receiving and believing all their things rather than looking to Christ. And then we begin to follow him and there's that tension and temptation to follow the world and believe the world. And so Jesus was troubled. It's hard to follow Jesus but it's worth it. So you shouldn't hear the call to carry the cross and follow him as just a a stoic, happy, clappy moment where life gets easier. It means that you die to yourself daily, denying yourself and following Jesus. So Jesus' hour had come and his soul was troubled and he was going to the cross for us, but he is a sympathetic high priest who is sympathetic with our weaknesses He and always was tempted as we are, yet without sin. This troubled soul of Jesus reminds me of Isaiah 53.3. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, Jesus, he was despised and we esteemed him not. But what did Jesus do? Did he know the cross was on the horizon and turn and run? Jesus played the man. Jesus cloaked himself in courage. He was resolute. He would not forsake his father nor the mission that Father, Son, and Spirit had planned. But don't miss it. In the very moment of his troubled soul is also the moment of him encouraging himself to obey God, to glorify the Father. 
There was a work to do, and Jesus came to work that work. This was the hour Jesus had come for, and Jesus would see that it was time well spent. And so Jesus steeled himself praying, Father, glorify your name. Three times the Gospels record the Father audibly speaking from heaven. Right at Christ's baptism, at the Mount of Transfiguration, and and here on the eve of the Last Supper. Verse 28, then a voice came from heaven, and listen to what God says. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. You see, all across Scripture, God's aim has been to exalt himself because he is worthy and worth all exaltation. And the pursuit, God exalting himself, and our greatest joy are one and the same. Meaning, we are designed to find our greatest joy and satisfaction in the exaltation of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So from the Old Testament promises of Christ to come, to the incarnation of the Son, to Jesus' perfect life in our place, to this very moment in John 12, the Father has been glorifying his name because the Father has been cloaking himself, as it were, in the Son to come down and live in our place. The Son has. The Father's plan to save a people. The Father's plan in the Son by the Spirit to move towards sinners and sufferers like you and me to rescue us from our sins against Him by dying for us. That's what kind of God He is. That's how He's glorified. God's glorification and our salvation, God's magnification and our joy, He has designed to be the same. A horse is made to run, a fish to swim, a bird to fly, and a human to glorify God, thereby finding our greatest satisfaction in life. And in verse 31, Jesus continues, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. On this coming day, when the cross is laid down and Jesus is laid on it, and he is nailed to it, and when that cross is lifted up in the earth and then set into the ground... The sound of Jesus' cross falling into the earth, into its place, was simultaneously the sound of God's cosmic gavel resounding across the universe, guilty. But not Christ, the world. Now is the judgment of the world. God has judged the world and found it guilty for crimes worse than Adam's fall, the illegal and malicious death of the Son of God, the Son of Man. The cross was the pinnacle of all human sin, and we all participated in it. But the world, the flesh, and the devil have all been judged. And what looked like the triumph of evil was actually the exaltation of good, put differently, The vindication of the Trinity and God's cosmic gospel plan is the judgment of the world. Specifically, the ruler of the world is cast out. As one commentator puts it, it's the dethronement of the devil from tyranny over men. 
It's the kingdom of Christ and his gospel triumphing over the kingdom of the evil one as Jesus gathers for himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Evidenced by the Greeks who came to ask to see Jesus. The gates of hell will not stand against the triumph of the church as we wield the keys of the kingdom. And so verse 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, there is a problem here, a problem of misinterpretation that we need to deal with. We've, we've come across this type of language before in the Gospel of John. We have to address it again. And it's when Jesus says he will draw all people to himself. Now, we can't let what he says there overshadow the reality that he is declaring what kind of death he will die, namely being exalted and coronated on the cross, lifted up from the earth. But there's a misunderstanding when Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. Some have, well, there's two ways to understand this text. One is horribly wrong and heresy, and the other is very right. The wrong way to understand what Jesus says here is that when he says, I will draw all people to myself, that it's the heresy of universalism, that all people will be saved. People read this and they think, aha, see, Jesus will draw all people to myself. That means all people without exception, everyone. But the Gospel of John, on every single page, makes clear that's not an interpretive possibility. In fact, John 3, you go back there after the famous John 3, 16, go to 17 and 18, and we discover that those who don't believe are condemned already. No, what Jesus is speaking is Jesus is not teaching he will draw all people without exception. Jesus is teaching he will draw all people without distinction. And that's good news. The reason it's good news is because the people of God in this transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New Eternal Covenant of Peace, it's going to go from God's people expanding from ethnic Jews to now include ethnic Jews and Gentiles, what Revelation calls people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what Jesus means, all people without distinction, all skin colors, all hairstyles, all nose shapes, all accents, all geographical regions, Jesus is an equal opportunity savior when he brings you from death to life. Jesus has come to draw all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and it glorifies him to have this diverse group of people who are now a new man, Ephesians, in the gospel of Christ. And he's lifted up means it's a double meaning. Not just lifted up on the cross, it's hidden here, but we know also the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is coming. In other words, the seed sown will bear much fruit. This leads us then to the third and final point. Believe in the light while you have the light. Verse 34. So the crowd answered Jesus. This is how they're going to respond to all that we've looked at he said. The crowd answered Jesus, well, we heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, 
lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, we, we know this happens all the time. The crowds remain confused. Uh, no one gets it until Jesus raises from the grave and pours out his spirit. But, but here we encounter once again this phrase, son of man, this title, son of man. It's a favorite title that Jesus uses of himself. Um, he used it in the beginning of our passage. It's used twice here in what I just read and it's used all throughout the gospel accounts. What does that mean? The crowd asks for us, who is the son of man? Let's see who the Son of Man is. The Son of Man is the Son of Man from Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verse 9. Listen to this description of who Jesus is, who you've assembled to worship this morning. Daniel 7, verse 9, Daniel's having a vision, reads, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and a thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Verse 13, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was pre presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's who the Son of Man is. That's who Jesus is. Perhaps still riding on the colt, palm fronds in the background, waving before him. Maybe he is dismounted, and now the Greeks have come. But that's who the Son of Man is. That is who Jesus Christ is. But they don't need to understand that this glory, this dominion, this kingdom, people serving him from every people, nation, and language requires him to die so they could have life. Requires Jesus to die so you could have life. Requires Jesus to be crucified for your sins so that you could have life. And here is Jesus teaching their response. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Once again, the inseparability of walking after Jesus is believing in Jesus. You can't say that I believe in Jesus and not walk after Jesus. Faith has feet. We're followers of Christ. And these words here that Jesus speaks to you, to every single one of us, about walking in the light, this now bookends with what he began. Do you remember where he began in verse 25? Whoever loves his life in this world loses it. 
Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To walk in the light, to serve Christ, all because he lived, died, and rose, all because he did the work for us, Jesus removed condemnation from us, poured out his grace upon us. When we believe this, do you see how verse 26 ends? The Father honors us, you. This is perhaps the greatest paradox. You see, this whole passage is explaining what Jesus will soon do when he, as the seed, goes into the ground to reap a harvest of much fruit, but inseparable from the words of what Jesus' cross work will be is inseparable from that is your obedience and followership of following Jesus and, and hating your life in this world for eternal life. But the paradox, this last one, is the greatest. We would expect him to say that the Father will honor the Son, of course, because of what Jesus did in obedience to the Father. But no, it says, if anyone serves me, the end of 26... If you serve Jesus, the Father will honor you. That's what kind of God you worship and serve. Jesus does the work. You get the honor. Undoubtedly, there's other passages we can point to where Jesus gets all acclamation and praise, to be sure. But Jesus here is appealing to your desires. In other words, to hate your life in this world is worth it beyond your wildest dreams and greatest imagination. Because the new physical world to come, the new heavens, the new earth, our new glorified bodies on it, is worth living for Christ. Now Jesus is worth dying for because he thought you were worth dying for. That's the kind of God we worship and serve. Not an evil taskmaster, a gracious gift giver, the God of grace and strength and joy. So my question to you, does this passage characterize your life? Are you bearing the marks of bearing your cross, denying yourself and following Jesus daily? But here's what I don't want you to miss. The appeal for you to deny yourself and follow Jesus, to resist temptation, to choose the ways of Jesus more than the ways that you feel. To choose Jesus is all rooted in an appeal to desire. What do I mean? The net result of Christ's work in your followership is you getting honored so that Christ would be magnified because they're inseparable. Do you serve the God who rewards those who believe in him? Do you recognize that appeal in the gospel? Listen, this, this brings to mind a favorite passage of mine in the opening words of C.S. Lewis's essay called The Weight of Glory. C.S. Lewis read his Bible well. Listen to these words. The New Testament, he says, has lots to say about self-denial, but not self-denial as an end in itself. 
We're told to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description in the Bible of what we shall ultimately find if we do so, denying ourselves, contains an appeal to desire. Lewis continues, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly to hope for our enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit, he says, that notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are, he says, half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's brilliant. And the reason it's brilliant is it's biblical. The amazing thing about the God that we worship and serve is all the commands of obedience are preceded and followed by appeals to the gospel and appeals to reward. There is a lot more life before us in the next age than in this one. Now we enjoy this world, we live in this world, we, we worship God with, with um, many things that he gives to us, but my fear for myself and for you is that you are far too easily pleased. The allurements and entrapments, enticements of this world, especially with technological advancements, TikTok, Instagram, your ambitions, your recreation, all the things that we can do, the good gifts even that God gives us, as I said earlier, we can turn good things into ultimate things, and rather than being vehicles of worship, they become objects of worship in themselves. We are far too easily pleased. There are eternal treasures for those who hate their lives in this world, deny themselves in this world, sacrifice themselves in this world to follow Jesus and to be on Jesus' mission. Whether he gives you one more day here or decades upon decades more here, it is worth living for Jesus and dying for Jesus because what we have promised to come is infinitely greater and infinitely longer than we can imagine. We're far too easily pleased. So there's a warning in Christ's words. If you are a follower of Christ, Jesus cautions us this morning to take an honest look at yourself and see, do you love your life in this world really more than hating your life in this world to gain it for the next? Are you more characterized by living for yourself or for living for Christ? Can you even answer the question, of what Christ requires for our relationships together as the church and more. You see, Jesus is a glad Savior. 
And he is with us in our sanctification. And his words here tell us that his spirit, as it were, is a gracious and power. The father is a happy rewarder of his children. Friends, Jesus is worth living for and he is worth dying for. Do you believe that? Amen? Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we confess that that we so easily order our lives in ways that don't mirror perfectly what your word expects of us. We think that we can find life apart from your ways, but Lord, you are the life. And so we pray, Lord, that whatever way our hearts are enticed, allured, seduced by the things of this world to a fault, even good things, Would you grant us that repentance to reorder our lives around you and your ways and your mission to live for you together as a local church? And Lord, we also pray that if there's ways that we take the good gifts that you give and turn them into ultimate things, Lord, would you help us see that, repent of it, and rightly order our loves and lives to represent you in this world? We thank you for your word. We thank you for your empowering grace. We thank you that you love us to tell the truth. We thank you for your cross. So, Father, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.